following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. This is from Acts 2, verses 1 to 13 and 42 to 47. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in the other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation unto heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each one of us hears with them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they had too much wine. They devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, uh, breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All of the believers were together and and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to the number every day those who were being saved. Let's just bow our heads and just open our hearts and just sit for a moment with God's word and let it just speak into our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We wait on you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the day of Pentecost. Thank you for the way you came upon those first disciples and how you come upon us even today. Thank you, Lord, by your spirit that that we're experiencing you here already, present, active, working in our hearts, reminding us of what Jesus has done for us. We pray that as we come around your word, will you open our hearts to receive all that you have for us. Father, I pray particularly for those who've never encountered you this way in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Will you do a work this morning? 
And I pray for those, Lord, who may have one day in the past, somewhere in the dim, distant memories that they hold. Lord, will you stir up afresh? Will you pour out afresh? Will you fill us afresh today? May none of us leave here the same. Lord, may we, may we know you as you want to be known. And so we pray, Lord, come again by your presence. Come again in power. Come again and fill us afresh. Stir up faith as we come to your word. Give us eyes to see all that Jesus has accomplished for us and all that you have for us in this new era of the Holy Spirit, that we might live in the fullness of God and bring glory and honor to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sashi. And thank you, Alicia. That was well done. You did really well. Tough passage to read all those names of cultural groups. Well, this morning we come to, probably as Pentecostals, what is one of the most amazing passages in, in the Bible, in the New Testament, certainly, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And in a lot of ways, um, this marks such a turning point in the life of the church. It, it, to use an expression that some of us may, may have heard, it's a seismic shift. And that expression is used of, you know, when we experience an earthquake or when the tectonic plates under the earth's crust move in such a significant way that everything is changed after that. The landscape is changed on the other side of that. And this experience for the church is kind of like that. Um, it, it's a, a radical shift that ev everything after that is different. And for me, you know, this reality of this radical change in landscape occurred, for, as for many people, at 9-11, uh, 2001, when the Twin Towers were, were attacked and destroyed. I remember going to New York and going to those Twin Towers and, and looking at the landscape and seeing the skyline, and it looked like that. And after that event... It was never the same. The landscape was different, and now they've built a new tower. Uh, but it, the skyline of New York looks completely different. And that moment changed so much for us. The way we travel, security procedures, so much of our world has changed in light of that one event, a seismic shift. More recently for us, COVID, sociologists are saying, is going to be one of those tectonic plate-shifting seismic moments in our history. We will remember a time pre-COVID and post-COVID. Our world is completely different and will be that in so many different ways. Acts chapter 2 is the dawn of a new era for the church. And so many things are never going to be the same. And so this morning, I'm, I'm really excited for us to have a look at this passage and to really see um, some of the most profound things that happened in the life of the church before Pentecost and after Pentecost. And so to give you a bit of background as we come into this um, passage, Pentecost, the word which we derive our denominational name from, Pentecostals, means 50. That's, that's really what it means. And in the Jewish 
feast calendar, it marked uh, the celebration of the Feast of Weeks, which celebrated the, the first kind of gathering in of the, the harvest um, of um, wheat, the wheat harvest. And what they used to do was offer up um, new grain to God as part of the, the worship rituals in Israel as an act of faith and thanksgiving that thankful for God's abundance that was going to come in the gathering of the harvest. And that event happened 50 days after Passover. And so uh, that's where we get the word Pentecost or 50 comes from. Um, And so it also um, came to be known as the time when they remembered the giving of Torah or giving of law to, to Moses on Mount Sinai. And if you read the book of Exodus, you will see that that event happened roughly about 50 days after the children of Israel left Egypt when the Passover lamb was sacrificed and the blood was applied on the, on the doorposts and the children of Israel come in and encounter God at the Mount of Sinai and God gives them Torah, God gives them the law. Um, and so that's a really, really significant connection to this event in Acts chapter 2 in, in, um, in Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit. So those two things play a really, really important role in us thinking about what God was doing here. Uh, one writer, Patrick uh, Schreiner, I think his name is, he identified several parallels between the, the coming of Torah, or God giving Torah um, on Mount Sinai and the coming of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Um, in, in Mount Sinai, all Israel were gathered. Here in Acts 2, we're told that the disciples gathered in one place. Moses ascends the mountain. Jesus ascended to heaven. We saw that in Acts chapter 1. Yahweh comes down in fire on Mount Sinai. The Spirit comes down in tongues of fire. A great storm surrounds Sinai when, when God gives them the law. And the sound of a violent wind fills the house. The law is given to, the, to Moses. The Spirit writes the law on our hearts. Um, Israel is to be a light to the nations. That was God's purpose all along for the people of Israel. The disciples are to be witnesses to the nations. And this is an interesting one. 3,000 die in Exodus 32 when they're gathered in, in Sinai. Um, that was after the golden calf incident. And in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 are saved. Really, really interesting parallels. And so he summarizes all of that by saying this. The narrative progression of Luke-Acts follows the pattern found in the Pentateuch. Israel is redeemed by blood and brought out of Egypt. God meets with his people on a high place and establishes a new covenant community. They are then called to be a light to the nations by their distinct lives. In Luke's retelling, each element of the familiar story is amplified. Jesus' blood is better than the blood of the, on the doorpost. The Spirit's presence is better than that at the tabernacle. And the mission to the ends of the earth is directed by God himself. Awesome. This is why Acts chapter 2 marks such a shift, such a definitive moment in what God was doing. But what you need to see here is that in one sense, even though it's radically different, It's still the same purpose that God always had. It is the fulfillment of the blessing or the promise that God made to Abraham in in Genesis chapter 12 when he says, from you or through you, all the nations will be blessed. And the Messiah, the promised one, the descendant of Abraham, the coming one, Jesus Christ, came and as we heard so powerfully this morning, thank you, Paul, laid down his life as a sacrifice for us, was the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And now the Spirit has come and is fulfilling that same promise, the same purpose that God had all along. 
which is to bless the nations, to bless us, to bless humanity through the coming of His Son and the giving of His Spirit. So it is in continuity with God's plan all along, but a radical shift happens on that day. And so I want to just highlight for you three things that moved that day, three things that were incredibly different after this event. The first one, we're told in Acts chapter 2 that the Spirit filled each of them. Acts chapter 2 verse 4 says, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came. There was tongues of fire that appeared on each and every one of them. And all of them were filled. Now the, with Luke intentionally using this imagery of fire and wind, what he's wanting to communicate is that this event, the coming of the Spirit, was the very real presence of God. And it, in theological terms, technically, it's called a theophany. And theophanies were physical expressions or physical manifestations of God's presence. God is spirit. He doesn't have hands and feet. And the Bible uses that language to help us understand that. But theophanies were physical expressions of God's presence. And fire was one that we see all the way through the Old Testament. Um, just some examples. We see the, in the burning bush when God turned up to talk to Moses. It was fire. We see the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel. When Elijah prayed, fire comes down from heaven. Um, so this symbol of God's presence, in, in going even back further in Genesis, when, when God meets with Abraham and makes the covenant promises sure, he appears in a, in a fire pot that moves between the, the cut pieces of the sacrifice. And so throughout the Bible, this symbol of God's judgment of God's very real presence is fire. And then we see wind, another image that appears throughout the Bible, all the way back from Genesis, when over the waters, the, the spirit hovered, that word spirit in, in Hebrew and in Greek can mean wind, means breath, it's the same word. And so in Genesis 1, the spirit, breath, wind of God is hovering over, over the chaos of the world. And we see again, a wind appears many, many times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as a symbol of God's presence. John chapter 3, Jesus said, you know, when the Spirit comes and brings conversion in a person's heart, that's like the wind blowing. And you don't know where it came from, you don't know where it's going, but you, you feel the presence of the wind of God. And so right here, when Luke says that there was fire and there was wind, what he's wanting to communicate is the very real presence of God was among his people. And that's a radical shift. Two incredibly different things that will never be the same. One is that now, because the Holy Spirit has come, we can know God in a more personal and intimate, powerful way than at any other time in biblical history. That's huge. Like Jesus said in John 14, 17, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will not just be with you, but He will be in you. And I love this because in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the very presence of God. The second significant thing is that time and time again, Luke makes it very, very clear that this experience happened for all of them. All of them. 
Look in verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Verse 4, all of them. Luke is very, very intentional in the words he's using to communicate this experience of God's indwelling presence, of, of the very real presence of God. In the Old Testament, was reserved for only certain people, prophets, priests, kings, special individuals that were called by God for a particular task or a particular mission, and it was temporary. But this is one of the tectonic shifts that happened at Pentecost. That now, this experience of God's intimate, personal presence was available to every single believer. Every single follower of Jesus can know God this way. Ajit Fernando, one uh, great Bible commentator, um, Sri Lankan, it's pretty awesome. Uh, he said this, Under the old covenant, the divine presence rested on Israel as a corporate entity and upon many of its leaders for special purposes. Under the new covenant established by Jesus and inaugurated by at Pentecost, the spirit now rests on each believer individually. That's huge, friends. That is profound. See, which is why the, the pioneers of the early Pentecostal movement, one of the things that, they, that often accompanied their, their gatherings, their meetings, and their Christian faith was a pursuit of holiness. Yeah, because they were so aware that God is with us. God is in us. Like, like Joseph said when, when he was tempted with Potiphar, how can I do this thing before my God? They had such a real awareness that God was so intimately with them and in them. And when they gathered together as God's people, God was here by his spirit. And so holiness, godly living, purity, righteousness, all of these things became really, really important to them. Because God was among them. Powerful. I, I wonder if we have that awareness. I, I wonder if we carry that sense with us every day when we go to work, when we go to school, when we go to university. God is with me. He's in me. I know sometimes we don't feel that. We don't experience that. And sometimes we go through seasons when there's dryness and when we feel really distant from God. Paul again alluded to that this morning. We feel that God has abandoned us or failed us or we, we, we wrestle with those subjective feelings sometimes. But the truth of God's word says that after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, we can know Jesus. We can know the presence of God in a, a powerful and profound way. And nothing is going to change that. That he's with us even when we don't feel like it. He's with us even when we can't see any evidence of that. He's in us all of the time, everywhere we go. No matter what, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Powerful, seismic shift. The second thing that Luke tells us is that, verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, as the Spirit empowered them, as the Spirit gave them the ability to do something extraordinary, speak in unknown languages. And again, Luke is very intentional about the way he's communicating this, and he wants to communicate this idea that these early disciples' experience of the Spirit parallels Jesus' own spirit baptism. In Luke chapter 3, when he describes how the, the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove, he goes on in Luke chapter 4 to say, and then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Luke wants us to understand that just like that, 
the, the same experience is available to Christians, followers of Jesus today, to experience the baptism, the empowering, the enabling of the Holy Spirit, and so that we can do ministry and mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Luke wants to show that we stand in continuity with the, with the ministry of Jesus. And that's what he told us in Luke, uh, in Acts 1.1. That this is, I, I wrote to you in the gospel about what Jesus began to do and teach. Now the idea is that Jesus is continuing to teach and do through his disciples. We stand in continuity with Jesus. And just like Jesus, his ministry was empowered by the Spirit. So our ministry is to be empowered by the Spirit. And like I said last week, the Spirit's empowering, enabling, baptism is not an optional extra. It's not the premium package. This is what Christianity is meant to be. Spirit-enabled, Spirit-empowered, Spirit-equipped, Spirit-led. It's in the Spirit. It's not, the Spirit is not dispensable in our Christian reality. So let's talk a little bit about spirit baptism. Let's talk a little bit about tongues. We're Pentecostals, and this is such a central teaching and doctrine for the Pentecostals. So I'm just going to answer four questions for you, and hopefully this will help you. First, is this a separate experience to when you become a Christian, or is it like one and same as conversion? Now, again, the theologians have been debating stuff, this, all of these questions for many, many years, and I want to just share with you the Pentecostal position. Uh, three other, there are three references in the book of Acts to the, the Spirit coming, baptizing people, and them speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. In all of those three experiences, it seems like that there is a, it's a separate event. It, it, even if it is closely connected to conversion, it seems like it's a separate, distinct experience from conversion. It seems like the people that were experiencing the coming of the Spirit, the enabling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, were already believers at some point prior to that. It's like when we become Christians, the Spirit comes into our hearts, if you like. That's how Jesus describes it. The Spirit comes into us. When you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit comes on you. And that's the language that Luke uses in the rest of the book of Acts, that the Spirit came on people, enabling them, empowering them for ministry and mission. Related to this, you know, like this is where Pentecostals get their theology of tongues being the, the conclusive, irrevocable, undisputed, initial evidence of the Spirit's baptism. Because in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius experiences the baptism of the Holy Spirit and starts speaking in tongues, the disciples were like, wow, look, they too have experienced what we experience in Acts chapter 2. It is, it is clear evidence that this person or these people have encountered the Holy Spirit the same way we did. That's what the, the, the Christians did who observed Cornelius experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I, I, I believe that... It, it is a separate and a distinct experience for any Christian, any follower of Jesus to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues as the evidence that that reality has happened. The second question is, are we talking about heavenly languages or are we talking about human languages? Well, maybe we're talking about both. Certainly in Acts chapter 2, it is human languages. 
they actually supernaturally were enabled by the Spirit to speak languages of other cultural groups that they had not learned. Now, Peter Wagner, he has mentioned and cites several instances where missionaries have experienced this kind of tongues, where God supernaturally enables them by the Holy Spirit to speak a language that they had not learned before. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he talks a lot about you know, tongues of men, human languages, and of angels. This heavenly language that some people say, that sounds like gobbledygook. Sounds like baby talk. But Paul is alluding to this language that is heavenly, that we communicate with God in a way that gets beyond our human intellect and our human words. That it's our spirit communicating with God. So maybe it's both. And maybe given the occasion and the scenario and the situation, like here, which was a significant moment, because this is a partial fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen in Acts chapter 8, uh, 1 verse 8. When the Spirit comes, there will be witnesses to all the earth. And here, Luke makes it very clear that all of the known Roman world were gathered in that moment. And they are hearing the wonders of God declared in their own language. It's a partial fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. And so when the occasion demands it, God is supernaturally able to enable you and me to do what is needed to proclaim Jesus. But there is also an experience of heavenly language that defies our reason and understanding where we can communicate with God. So are we talking about one or the other? Well, maybe we're talking about both. Is it for today? Is it for today? Well, I, I want to say absolutely, yes, it is for today. I want to say that nothing's changed. There is an argument called cessationism where some people have argued that all of the work of the Spirit, including tongues and prophecy and all of these supernatural things we read about in the book of Acts, they came to an end at some point in church history. And they might not necessarily agree at what point that is. Some people say when the canon of Scripture was completed. Some people say at the end of the apostolic era. But at some point it ceased, which is where we get the word cessationism from. But most modern... Commentators and Bible scholars argue that the evidence that's presented for the secessionist argument is really, really not convincing at all. Because they go to 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 13 where Paul talks about if there are tongues and if there are prophecies, they will cease. But the end point that he talks about is the coming of Christ, not any other point before that. And so one Bible one church historian uh, called Cecil M., I think I got his rubric, Robeck, he says this, speaking in tongues has always been in the church, although with varied levels of expression and acceptance. It was always there. It hasn't gone. So I believe, yes, it is for today. All of the work of the Spirit that we read about is for today. Is it for everyone? I want to say yes, absolutely. And as Pentecostals, again, we read Luke's Theology in his gospel and the book of Acts, as pro, it's, it's progressive and unfolding. What do I mean by that? Well, when you come to the gospel of Luke, he talks more about the Holy Spirit than any of the other gospel writers. And he focuses his attention on particular individuals in the gospel story. Anna, Simeon, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth, who all experienced the Spirit of God coming on them. But they're particular individuals connected often to priesthood 
or to uh, being prophets or something like that in continuation with the Old Testament. But as the gospel unfolds, more and more people experience the Holy Spirit. And then when we come to the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus talks about, he talks about Jesus breathing on them, the end of John's gospel. But in Luke's gospel, he says, wait again till you are clothed with power from on high. And then we come to Acts, and then we see the 120, then we see Cornelius, then we see Ephesians, Ephesian Christians in, in Acts chapter 19. It's this unfolding, broadening expression where Luke is saying, it started off with the people of Israel, but now it's for everyone. It's for Gentiles, it's for Jews, it's, and as Peter reminds us from Joel's prophecy, it's for men, it's for women, it's for young, it's for old. If there was any other way to say everyone, I'm sure that they would have come up with it. Peter and Luke's quoting of Peter makes it pretty clear. This is for everyone. This is how God always intended it to be. For everyone. Now let me speak a little bit about some of the crazy things that we can get caught up in as Pentecostals. Firstly, I think we can just make tongues the be-all and end-all. We can get so hung up about tongues that we lose sight that tongues is just a the first step in the journey of the Spirit. It's where the journey begins, but it's not where it ends. Even Peter goes on to say that when God pours out His Spirit, your your sons and your daughters, verse 17, will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will see dreams. And, And he talks about prophecy. There's so much more in the Spirit. But we can get so hung up about tongues that we miss what God is wanting to do in our life in the fullness of the Spirit. We miss Miracles, we miss healing, we miss deliverance, we miss prophetic leading and discernment. We, we, we miss all the other things we read about in the book of Acts that the early Christians experienced. There's so much more. As we come to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, he talks about the gifts of the Spirit, plural, plural. There is so much more for us to experience in God. So let's not wear our tongue speaking as a badge of honor as though, okay, we've attained ultimate spiritual status now. But going, God, thank you that you, you've baptized me in the Holy Spirit. Now will you release the other gifts of your spirit? Whatever you want, according to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Whatever gift you want, will you use me in church to bring a word in tongues or to bring a word of interpretation or to bring a word of prophecy or to bring a word of knowledge or wisdom to, to encourage someone? Will you, will you use me to, to pray for someone and see them healed? Will you give me uh, uh, the, the power to do miracles or the faith to believe for supernatural things? Believe and press into God for more. More. The second thing uh, I think we can, we can get caught up in is we forget the purpose. We can get, again, so enamored with the supernatural and, and what God's doing in our lives and enjoying the Spirit at work that we forget that all of this was to fulfill Jesus' prophecy in Acts 1.8, that you will be my witnesses. And we see even here in Acts chapter 2, the, the length that's given to Peter's sermon reminds us that, you know, the, the first 13 verses just talked about the coming of the Spirit, and that's awesome and wonderful. But the, the whole big chunk of Acts chapter 2 is Peter's declaration of the resurrection of Jesus. That's what it's about. And we see Peter here boldly declaring the power of God in raising Jesus from the dead. And he says, you know, you guys, you know about this. You saw the miracles that Jesus did. 
You know that he was from God. He, he, he reminds them from prophecy in the Old Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Davidic hopes. He is the Messiah that they've been longing for. And then he really hits them with him. And he says, and you crucified him with the help of Gentile people. You put the Messiah, this promised deliverer that we were all hoping for, you put him to death. And he reminds them that they're witnesses of the resurrection. This is not just baloney. This is not just stuff they've made up. But they've witnessed Jesus. And then he says, and this thing that you're seeing and you're hearing, this, this incredible supernatural enabling of the Spirit, we, that's happening because Jesus has now ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's pouring out his Spirit. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're hearing. The purpose is always to point back to Jesus, to point back to the risen Jesus, to point back to Jesus who's seated on the throne and he's pouring out his Spirit on all flesh. Let's not forget the purpose. That God is enabling us by His Spirit, empowering us to be witnesses wherever He has placed us. The third kind of mistake that sometimes we can make is we can get caught up in the supernatural. And I know and it's understandable, right? It's pretty amazing to see supernatural things happen. And for those of you who've been around church circles for a while, you know about the Toronto blessing and you know about all those other things that happen. Can I just say that not everything supernatural is godly? And we need to be so discerning, which is why I think it's interesting that one of the gifts that the Spirit gives is discernment. Discernment. And that's so, so important. And many of us come from cultures and traditions where we know about witchcraft. We know about occult. We know that even the power of darkness is real and supernatural. So we need to get really wise that we don't just get caught up with supernatural things. Just because we hear someone speaking in tongues doesn't necessarily mean that it's godly. Well, how can we know? Well, Peter tells us here that these people, sorry, Luke tells us in verse 11, they were declaring the wonders of God. That's what we need to be listening for. And in in 1 Corinthians, just before Paul goes on to have that extended discussion on the gifts of the Spirit, he says this, no one can declare the Lordship of Christ except by the power of the Spirit. So when you see supernatural things, ask yourself, is it declaring the wonders of God? Is it proclaiming Jesus as Lord? And also in 1 Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 13, you know, somebody can have dramatic, incredible spiritual gifts, but if they don't have love, They're nothing. So ask yourself, am I seeing the evidence of godliness in this person? Not just be taken up by the supernatural. Am I seeing the genuineness of faith, of Christ-likeness, of the Lordship of Christ, of them declaring the wonders of God and, and displaying the love of God in their life? You can roll around on the floor all you want and bark like a dog and laugh and do all of those things, but if it doesn't point to Jesus and it's about drawing attention to yourself... It might be supernatural, but it might not be godly. Have I lost any friends yet? Hopefully not. Hopefully not. All right. So the Spirit fills them. The Spirit enables them. The third thing is that the Spirit transforms them. See, and that's the thing, right? You you can have supernatural spiritual activity going on in your life, but if you're not changed into the image of Jesus, well, then you're missing what the Spirit came to do. 
He didn't come just to empower you. He came to change you, to change me, to renew us, to make us more like Jesus. That's the whole point. And we see in this last part the, from verse 42 on, onwards that this community of people were radically different. They were radically different. Something shifted. I mean, 3,000 people get saved on this day. 3,000 people from all different cultures coming together. And we're told this about them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're eating together all the time. They're getting along. Can you imagine that? All these different cultural groups, all of a sudden getting on like they've known each other and loved each other all their lives. That's huge. That's radical. I mean, I heard a podcast even this week. Just think about two of the disciples, right? One was Matthew, who was a tax collector. He worked for Rome. He, he would have been considered by every Jewish person as a traitor. And right alongside Matthew was Simon, the zealot. Now, these guys were passionate about overthrowing Rome. They took every opportunity to go around and slicing off Roman commanders' necks when they could. You've got Matthew and Simon both following Jesus. I mean, that's just, it's like a member of the Ku Klux Klan sitting alongside, I just want to try and convey that in our time, right? Sitting alongside Martin Luther King. It's just, you just, it just wouldn't happen except by the Spirit. Except by the Spirit. Look at this community. They devoted themselves. Nobody was making them do this stuff. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They, they loved the Word. They were in the Word. They hung out. They had fellowship together. They ate together. They broke bread together. They prayed together. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Same expression that was about what Peter said that Jesus did. Continued the ministry of Jesus. And listen to this part. This is when you know that something supernatural has happened, right? All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. One Bible writer said that the genuine, one genuine mark of true conversion is generosity. Because we're generally tight-fisted, right? It's only when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us that all of a sudden we go... Then every day they continued to meet together in the temple. They met together often. They loved it. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What, a, what an awesome church. What an awesome church. And you might be sitting there going, man, that sounds like heaven on earth. How amazing would it be? Just wait. When we get to chapter 4 and 5, we'll see it wasn't so great. Two cautions when we read stuff like this. One, don't idealize the church. Not just the early church. And often we do. We look back on stuff like this and go, oh, wouldn't it be amazing? It was messy back then too. People were crazy back then too. Did dumb things, said dumb things, hurt each other, upset each other. Don't, don't idealize the early church and don't idealize this church. Don't idealize any church. Because the, the more you expect the church to be ideal and perfect, the more disappointed you're going to be. The more in despair you will be, the more discouraged you will be. And I hear it. You now, some people come into our church and they, they're here a couple of weeks or months and they go, oh, this is like the perfect church. And I go, no, it's not. But there's so many things they love about it. And that's wonderful and it's great. But the higher the idealism, the more the disappointment when you come face to face with the reality 
that it's messy. Right? Yes, because church is full of people like you and me who love Jesus with our whole heart. Yes, and we have been filled with the Spirit. Yes, we're being transformed by the Spirit. Yes, but we're not there yet. We've still got a ways to go. We've still got some growing to do. Praise God that we're not who we were, but we're also not who we're going to be. And in the middle, between the idealism and the reality, is a lot of room sometimes. So when you come, when you look around and you see the mess, embrace it and go, Jesus, I'm not perfect and neither are my brothers and sisters, but we're committed to growing in Jesus together. We're committing to being this kind of community that loves each other genuinely and sincerely. We're committed to growing through the hard seasons and the difficulties and the conflicts and the mess and the brokenness. We're committed because we love Jesus and we want to be open to the Spirit to keep transforming us and changing us to become more and more like Jesus. And we're going to do that together in community. The second caution is don't give up on the church. Don't give up on the church because it is full of messy and broken people. And, you know, people have been deeply hurt by the church. Broken. People have said and done awful and terrible things. And I don't blame people for going, you know what, I never want to step in the, you know, one step into a church ever again. And that's real. And we need to acknowledge that you know, in church history, like I, when people have these debates with me, they want to talk about the Crusades, and I go, oh, can we not talk about the Crusades? It's, and even in our own story, there's probably experiences you can recount where you've been let down, hurt, disappointed, betrayed, add to the list. But here's the thing. Even on the other side of Pentecost, when, as I said, each of us have now this in individual intimate experience of Jesus like we've never had before. Everything happens in community. The New Testament knows no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So I know it's hard when the church, people in the church, leaders hurt and abuse people. It's painful. It strikes at a very, very deep place. But in the midst of that, look to Jesus Don't give up on the church because it's still his body and the spirit is still among us. He's still at work. He still fills us individually, 1 Corinthians 3. He still fills us collectively when we gather together, 1 Corinthians 6. We are the temple of the living God. And we might not be there yet, friends, but I want to encourage you and encourage me and all of us together to be this kind of people. the people of God who are filled with the Spirit, who are enabled by the Spirit to do extraordinary things, to speak in tongues and prophesy and have dreams and visions, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in power and boldness and to be a transformed community where we're growing in Jesus, where we're growing in Christ, where we're becoming more like Him, dealing with the mess of journeying together with other broken people. Will you, will you be a part of that kind of community? Because that's the kind of community Jesus came to establish. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and ask the band to come up. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
why don't you just open your heart to the Holy Spirit? You know, when I was just standing there during worship, I really sensed the, the Holy Spirit put a thought in my mind. That maybe there are some people here, maybe one, maybe a couple, that have come to the place of thinking, it's not for me. This experience of the Holy Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's not for me. And maybe you've given up, you've gotten discouraged, and you've just given up, and you've just kind of gone, no, God, that's okay, it's not for me, it's for everybody else, it's not for me. And I really wanted to encourage you, the Lord saying, no, it is for you. It is for you. You know, it's no accident that when Jesus in the Gospel of Luke talked about asking the Father for the gift of the Holy Spirit, that he used verbs that were present continuous. And he said, ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking. I don't know why for some people it happens in a moment, the first time we pray. And for others, it's a process and a journey. I don't know. But Jesus must have known that for some of us, it required continuous asking and knocking and seeking. And I want to encourage you, don't give up. No matter how long it's been and no matter how long it might be, don't give up. Keep being open. Keep being hungry for God. Keep coming to God expectant. I know that every time you come and every time you ask, God is at work in your heart. He's doing something. The Spirit is coming and is working and ministering to you. He's filling you because Paul, again, used a present continuous when he said, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. Continually. And for some of you, I really sense that this experience of the Spirit has been something in your memory, in the past. And there's a dryness. And it's been a long time since maybe you've spoken in tongues or moved in the gift of prophecy. And I believe the Holy Spirit is wanting to breathe on you and stir it up again. I believe for us as a church, God is leading us and ushering us into a new era, a new season of experiencing the Holy Spirit in our gathering, in our lives. And so I encourage us, wherever we're at in our journey, to open our hearts right now in this moment. Holy Spirit, we surrender to you. We don't need to be afraid of you. You are good. You are gentle. You are loving. You are gracious. And I sense you here knocking on people's hearts. You know, we're going to spend some time praying for people this morning, whether it's for the first time you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and step into that new experience of the intimacy and the presence of God and the power of God for mission and all of the things we've talked about. Or whether you want to be filled again and afresh. Maybe with a, it's because you're dry and you, you just need a, a fresh feeling or you, you feel that you're in a good place but you just want more. You just want more of the Holy Spirit. Wherever you're at, we're going to pray for you this morning. But before we do that, Maybe you're here, or maybe you're watching online, maybe you're outside and you don't know Jesus. Friend, Peter preached this powerful message as an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is alive. 
And that's why we can talk about the Spirit because He's seated at the right hand of the Father and He's pouring out His Spirit. And Peter promises that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That was Joel's promise. And this experience of God, this intimacy we've been talking about is available to you. And you can receive God's forgiveness as Paul shared with us so powerfully. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how far you've run, He's here with His arms open wide to receive you and to give you His Holy Spirit. And like Peter says, I encourage you to repent. To repent. As these people heard Peter talking, he said, what must we do? Peter said, repent. Turn from your sin and turn to God and receive His love and receive His forgiveness and you too will have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so if that is you this morning, I encourage you in this moment, as every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if you're in this building or you're online or you're outside, why don't you just slip up your hand? It's not so that I can see, but it's so that Jesus can see. And maybe you were walking closely with God at one point, but you've drifted and you've wandered far from God and you sense the Holy Spirit calling you back to God. And if that's you, why don't you lift your hand? And wherever you are, I'm going to pray that God meets you in a very powerful way. Father, I pray for everyone that's reaching out to you, whether they're here, outside, or online, or whether they, Lord, are listening at some point in the future as they're watching this back on YouTube. Father, as they feel and sense you calling them, because that's what Peter said, all those the Lord calls responded. Father, as they sense your calling on their heart and as they're responding by raising their hand, I pray that you will meet them. I pray that they would know the coming of your spirit, that they would be converted and born again by the spirit. The wind of your spirit will blow on their hearts. And Lord, that in that moment, they will also experience the fullness of your love and your presence and your power, that you'll clothe them with power from on high. Fill them with your spirit, Lord, I pray. Touch them, transform their lives as they encounter the resurrected Jesus in this moment. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.